0: Hey guys, welcome. Come on in and grab something to drink or eat and uh, find a seat. We're going to try to get started here. We've got a lot to get to tonight. We've got uh, our normal gathering that's going to be shortened, and then uh, we've got uh, a ecclesia meeting, which is our uh, $50 word for our church meeting, church life meeting. So uh, we're going to continue our series in Amos, the book of Amos, uh, tonight as well. And so I um, want to leave room for uh, all that we got to do. So grab your sheets that have lyrics, and uh, we're going to start with a Psalm, uh, psalm 89. And uh, we've got Mike Garrigan with us tonight again, and Dale Baker, and Mike's written this song. Um, he didn't write the psalm, actually. That was a little before his time, but he wrote the music.
1: Sing The goodness Of the Lord Forever I will sing The goodness Of the Lord Blessed the people Who know The joyful shout In the light of your countenance, oh Lord, they walk, and that's your name. They rejoice all the day, and through your justice they are exalted, forever I will sing. The goodness of the Lord You are the splendor of their strength And by your favor our horn Is exalted for to the Lord Belongs our shield And the Holy One of Israel yeah okay. of the Lord, forever I will sing the goodness of the Lord.
2: Thanks guys, welcome to Emmaus Way, uh, I am Amy, I'm one of our pastors here. And Tonight we have a pretty full schedule, so I'll try not to rush too much, but try to be timely and all those good things. Um, we are a community of people gathered here because we are, as Dan Rhodes likes to say, compelled by the gospel, um, and we are trying to work out God's story and be a part of that both um, in the world and, and here in Durham in particular, so we're glad that you're with us tonight. Um, a few things about who we are and how you can connect um, we have a couple regular things that go on during our commu- in our community during the week um, one of those obviously is our, our Sunday night gathering um, but then we also have um, home groups that meet in homes um, that gather around either dinner conversation, um, sometimes a study um, and if you're interested in connecting with one of those our contact person is Elizabeth Eford she's back with our kids tonight but her email can be found on your handout. Um, we also have a pub group that meets on Thursday nights and that is Dan Rhodes is our, over there, is our, both our host with the most and our um, pub group leader and that we send out an article each week um, dealing with theology or politics. So if you're interested in getting on that listserv, um, contact Dan, we meet at seven or at eight at Bulma Caves. Um Other things that you can get involved in, we are very involved with uh, the Reality Center. A lot of our folks uh, find a place there to volunteer and to connect with. And so if you're interested in uh, connecting with that, Julie DeCanto is our contact person. I don't see her tonight, but um, her email, again, is on there. And then two other things, kids and um, our hosting rotation. Our hosting rotation and setup, we always need folks to kind of pitch in on Sunday nights. So if you're interested in doing that, Sarah Bussman is our contact person for that. And kids, again, we always need um, more hands for little people. Um, So Amanda Schaefer is our contact person for that. Tonight, um, we have a uh, kind of church family meeting, as we like to call it, where we hash out family business. Um, And that is is our ecclesia meeting. We are meeting directly after um, our worship gathering tonight for that, and there will be pizza. So if you are um, interested in staying either for the business or the pizza, we'd love to have you for either one. Um, We're going to be voting on our budget tonight, so it is thrilling, (laughs) exciting things, and I am glad that I do not have to talk numbers because you wouldn't want to hear it. I'm not very good at it. So um, we're going to get a head count probably for pizza at some point. Nope, we're not. Dave's done it. He's a magician. Two important things that are coming up on February 12th. We're going to have a um, kids volunteer training. So if you are a new volunteer or if you are an existing volunteer, um, we'd love to have you come to that. And there more, more information will be in the weekly about that that goes out each um, later this week. And then also February 26th um, is our minister's liturgy. We um, at Emmaus Way like to call our kind of right of belonging, our right of membership. Um, uh, our minister's liturgy and we do that about once a quarter um, and so if there are anybody who is interested we'd love to talk to you about that um, Dan or Tim or Wade or I um, any of us would love to chat with you about that so welcome to Mesa we're glad you're here
3: So yes, definitely be invited to hang out. If you're just this is the first time you're with us, please feel very welcome to stay and have pizza. Uh, if uh, if you're if this is your community or you're kind of checking it out, it's great to stick around for the ecclesia meeting. You'll get a uh, kind of a, a sense of the tone and the way this community operates, which is kind of a an open family slash co-op slash. Whatever else. So anyway, we're delighted that you're you're with us tonight. Hey, it's usually our typical way of operating to give you a chance to speak to each other before we speak in dialogue. We were we're working through the book of Amos Uh, now. We're in the second installment of that. We'll be mainly in chapter three and the first three verses of chapter four. It's a book of prophecy. It's a a book of describing a social condition one that relates a great deal to the world that we live in right now. So excited about doing that, but want to give you an opportunity to stand up. uh, Greet each other, offer each other the peace of Christ. If you're around somebody that you don't know, introduce yourself. Uh, It's also a great chance. uh, My son Keenan, who evaluates church, certainly not by the sermon uh, and weighed, unfortunately, not by the music, but uh, but by the food. Like, apparently tonight there's like guacamole. And cookies with icing, so that might be like the, that's that's akin to Easter or the 18th week of Christmas or something, but uh, this is a great time to get a snack if you'd like or some coffee, uh, but please stand up and greet each other. So, the rumor is that the coffee hasn 't quite finished brewing over there, so i 'm not even going to be remotely offended if you hop up in the middle of dialogue to get coffee. In fact, I might do that in fact, I might like pick out somebody like Andy, if you could have like a really long, thoughtful commentary somewhere in that that 'll be the key for me to like run and uh, run and grab some coffee but uh, anyway, something about evening church where sugar and caffeine are are, are, are near sacramental in their qualities, I would have to say uh, i'm not sure about the theological rooted in that and this and that, but it's certainly uh, functional without that so well, I hope you've had the opportunity I'm going to keep prodding you on this um, have if has anybody like really sat down and cranked through Amos? Uh, all the way through. I really want to encourage you to uh, to read through this text. It's the type of material that you don't, if you like read or have read devotional stuff, you get a verse or two out of Amos, but you don't get the story. It's also the type of text that's often not preached through except in certain little sections. You kind of get the justice rolls down uh, like a river verse, but you miss the breadth of this. And Amos is a story. It's a, it's a work of art. It's a piece of uh, poetry. It's a story in and of itself. So I want to encourage you to kind of read through it. Uh, Sit down at a sitting. uh, Try to read the text as it goes along. Uh, Next week we'll be camping in chapter 4. So if if you want that preview, that'll that'll help you with that. Uh, But uh, but anyway, I want to encourage you to, uh, to kind of do some reading with that. Now, have you guys noticed... There's a little bit of language going on in terms of class warfare in our culture. Anybody notice that just slightly, just a a little taste of that? Uh, Now, for example... You know, it's the Occupy movement that has brought maybe the largest uh, kind of focus on class warfare. You know, I don't think two years ago people were walking around talking about the 1% or the 99% in our our, our world. But certainly that movement and the the images on, uh, you know, uh, of protests in Seattle, uh, Wall Street, even for me just walking down the street, uh, Franklin Street in Chapel Hill and watching those, now they're like just... I don't know if you Jesse, I don't know if you've been there recently, but they're down to like three tenths or two tenths. There was eight or nine tenths in one while. But it, but but it's but that has kind of galvanized our attention that there's class language going on and there's there's angst related to social class. Now um, that kind of 1% and 99% type of language has been picked up a lot by the Democrats. Uh, if, if, and I even shudder to say this, but if you remember John Edwards pretty prominently, uh, six to eight years ago talked a lot about two Americas and that sort of thing, but that language is picked up. But now in our family, and I picked on Keenan about food, but we're kind of political junkies around the house. So CNN and stuff like that plays a lot. And, and, uh, Last night, did anybody watch the, uh, the, the, kind of the, the South Carolina pr- uh, primary results and the speeches and all those stuff? I worked my way through all of them. And what was really interesting in the last couple of weeks is the language of class warfare typically kind of used by Democrats has been used a great deal by Republicans in the last couple of weeks. For example, Romney, who was the erstwhile frontrunner, had to face accusations of not just being a capitalist, but being a vulture capitalist which forced lots of conversations of saying, what's the difference between a vulture capitalist and a capitalist? And at some point I remember him saying, I'm proudly a capitalist. Um, Interestingly, um, the commentary last night talking about Gingrich's surprise win was a lot related to class. If if you saw the debates, he was asked a really uncomfortable uh, question about sexual infidelity. Uh, The very first question by, I think it was John King of CNN in the South Carolina or the southern states, Debate and Gingrich shot back like i can 't believe you would ask such a stupid, inappropriate question it 's an example of kind of way the media operates in our culture today now, interestingly, uh, as pollsters would say, south carolina' is about sixty percent evangelical Christian. typically serial adulterers don 't tend to do very well but but last night, Gingrich got more of the evangelical vote than um, than romney did and when asked people in exit polls said we like his gumption he kind of took a big stick and 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 swung it right at the media he had the voice of the common man we're not so sure that some of the other candidates understand what the common man is all about and last night in his speech he picked up some of this kind of populist class language saying i want to be remembered as not the greatest food stamp president uh thinking about Obama, but the greatest paycheck president. So here's all of this kind of class language, and I don't know if you're processing it as that, but it's there, and it's very prominently displayed, and I think we're going to hear a lot of that in the, the next uh, eight or nine months. And In fact, maybe all of us by November, uh, Republican or Democrat, may get in a car and drive a long way, hopefully one that goes over oceans. We may be so weary of that, um, but that's the language that we've been hearing. In Interestingly, now I had another experience this week, uh, something that I don't often do. My my retirement funds manager had a, a dinner at the Carolina Club. And the key word for me was not retirement funds or funds. That's not a big part of my life. But Carolina Club did stand out prominently. So I went and got the free food at the Carolina Club. But I listened to um, a lecture, actually a really good speaker of a University of Wisconsin. PA. Actually, Jesse, this is the kind of thing you probably could do and do really well. Uh, PhD of finance, talking about the markets, and, and, and going forward. And interestingly, um, he had a lot to say about kind of a coming coming reckoning in America. Lots of things like he said, a president bomb knee will have no impact on the markets whatsoever, doesn't matter who you vote for, uh, any of those things. But one of the things he started talking about was the idea that we're going to have to rethink the way we live related to our finances and wealth. For example, um, the baby boom, and he used a lot of generational language, and I know there's uh, not a lot of baby boomers here. There's probably some folks that are before that generation, uh, and, uh, and then maybe myself is kind of on the edge of that, but not a lot of baby boomers. Like Jim Thomas, we're talking about you right now. You and Gail, and it's not going to go well for you at this point. Baby boomers have had more money than anybody in America, and you want know what the average retirement of baby boomers is right now? May I take a guess? Phil, you got an MBA. you got to have this answer right. $42,000? That's really close. It's $20,000. No generation in America will have had more or will give less uh, to the generation behind them. And one of the things that changed, and and this this was a baby boomer speaking, by the way, said the old way that we used to operate is that you had money and then you spent it. But for about 30 years, the opposite worked. You didn't have money, but you spent it, which accrued credit and debt, and that worked in your favor. Like, for example, he was saying, over the 200 years of life in America, and we'll get off politics here in a minute, but off life in America, the worst investment in the world was your house. But over the last 30 years, the assumption is that's the most significant investment. I have dear friends, family members and people, friends who are CEOs who live out in Seattle who have like no interest, I mean, no equity mortgages, meaning every payment that they make on their house only pays on the interest, not on because the housing market has skyrocketed. And he was basically saying all that stuff that you've been conditioned to learn for 20 years Forget it all, because it's not the way the world's going to work. The economy's actually really good, but you can expect 2 to 4% returns, not 10 to 20% returns for the rest of your life. So he's talking about a huge paradigm shift in money. And here we have our politicians talking about um, class warfare and angst related to kind of the financial world that we live in and people having more than others. And so it's kind of an interesting idea that this is such a common conversation. Anybody want to take a guess what Amos is about in chapter 3 or the first part of 4? It's about a paradigm shift related to wealth. In fact, as you read this, there's some pretty vivid images in this. And you're going to hear, read these, and you're going to hear Sarah read these images for us and kind of go, wow, that kind of class warfare, 99, 1% kind of stuff wasn't invented a few weeks ago. This is pretty common biblical language. But let's do a quick rewind because it's hard sometimes to read or hear prophetical material. So remember this, the essence of understanding the prophets is that they're not necessarily about prediction. They're about talking about the current social condition that we're living in. Now, the biblical... So they're, they're cultural commentators. But biblical prophets are comparing the cultural situation to the covenant that God made with Israel. And the essence of that covenant, there's lots of details to it, but the essence of it was that loving God meant loving neighbors... And the vision of Israel was to be a just society, a society that loved neighbors in a just manner such that when people came into Israel, they experienced the hospitality of God or those who watched them were aware that there was a not a local God, but the God of all the universe ruling over Israel. That was their God. So that's what the prophets do is they basically talk about the state of Israel and compare it to the covenant that they've made with God. Now, the one other little catch, remember this, Israel is divided, we're talking about the northern part of Israel, which unfortunately lives next door. Who is Israel's next door neighbor? Assyria and Assyria is a friendly bunch of folks, right? I mean, they come in and visit every now and then, help build some libraries. Uh, No, Assyria kills anything that's in their way. They unfortunately are in a little 30 year economic downturn, but their two greatest military leaders are coming about 30 years after Amos lives. But Israel's sitting pretty good. They've got peace, they've got wealth, they're doing all right, but Amos is saying it's going to end, and it's going to end at God's hand. So remember, that's the social condition. That's what the prophets are doing. We're in this little bit of kind of a financial boom. This is people maybe sitting around looking at the 1995 stock market and going... Dude, I am so bummed. My mutual funds only got twenty-one percent this year. I'm firing Josh because he sucks as a broker. I'm going with Wade because he's getting thirty uh, percent, you know, and this Bernie Madoff guy's getting forty or fifty percent. Isn't this world great? And Amos is saying that's not how it works. So listen to Sarah. Sarah's going to come and read Amos and uh, and note these kind of vivid images and the poetry related. To that thanks, Sarah.
4: This is Amos chapter 3 to the first couple verses of 4. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when no bait is there? Does a trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up fortresses when they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved, those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. Hear this and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
3: So that's some pleasant stuff there. I mean, it kind of makes you want to have a potluck, (laughs) kick back, maybe, uh, wait, let's substitute a little kumbaya for the next song. It's some really soft stuff here. Those are some graphic images. Now, look at the very first, like the first seven or eight verses. Just that portion right now for, for a second. What do we learn about Yahweh in this text? Give that a look over. He likes rhetorical questions. And he had this crazy son who told stupid parables that nobody could understand. Yeah, I mean, yes, definitely.
5: <laughs> he does something, you should pay attention.
3: Y- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, it, it, when, when God speaks, one should notice. Absolutely. Trigger what we know about God.
5: Well, it might be against you if you're closer friends with him because he's going to get you and screw up.
3: Yeah, God doesn't seem to have an optional posture related to the covenant, right? Oh, the Bainhams, they are wickedly treating their neighbors, stealing land, stealing stuff. But I like the Bainhams, let's just let it, you know, that, that doesn't seem to be the attitude uh, of, of Yahweh, absolutely. Other, other things that we learn about Yahweh in this. So God can't ignore injustice. In fact, Trigger, I might even strengthen your comment to say that intervention related to injustice is inevitable. That that God doesn't have it in God's person to ignore wholesale mistreatment forever. Very true. Interestingly, Amos is a prophet, right? Right? We learned that he, earlier last week, we learned that he's a shepherd, uh, didn't go to the best schools, probably didn't have the best SAT. Uh, He's coming from Judah to Israel. Um, He's, why is he prophesying? It's because he has to. He's compelled to prophesy. And it's interesting in this poem that we looked at there, there's this idea that God doesn't move without some sense of Prophecy around what God is doing. In other words, one of the things that's really interesting here is that Yahweh speaks, that Yahweh isn't desi- isn't hoping to be confusing. Yahweh doesn't hope that the actions of God are unknown, but in some ways are known. And, and so um, God may ruin cities, so to speak, or, or or reckon them. This is really a portrait of a reckoning of things being set right, but God is going to speak in, in doing that. So We learned a good deal about that. What about humanity? How does humanity contrast with Yahweh? And that's, you know, own into it a little bit. But any thoughts on that just from the general vibe of this poem, this oracle, really?
6: Well, humanity is self-serving.
3: Yeah, and how does Yahweh operate? So he's
6: uh, looking at the whole picture, not just himself.
3: Right, And if you're a Hebrew, you knew that God created out of nothing, out of love. There wasn't some instrumental reason that God needed a creation. But that seems to be the opposite, the way humanity uh, operates. Any other contrasts that jump out of this? You know, humanity, like the
6: centralized power. You get all these like, fortresses and strongholds and, you know, the languages of, you know, later, you know, the, it's the mansions and the... Uh people
3: yeah yeah that humanity tends to organize doesn't it around its own power, around its own sense of beauty, around its own capabilities What is humorous about that kind of in a theological sense? Is't it kind of crazy that the finite Human beings are basically saying we're permanent to the God that is permanent, so to speak. So as we kind of work our way through this, the the poet, the oracle, takes us through these crazy acts of futility. And remember, Amos is speaking to a society that is, do you remember last week that vivid phrase of cheating each other? The, The father and son use the same woman that just kind of, Rampant immorality and injustice in the world, but the reaction to that is a lot of religious organization, a lot of self-righteousness, a lot of confidence based on the works of the people because things are going great. I mean, the economy is good. Surely that's the blessing of God in, in our life is what they were saying to each other. So the poet works his way through some things that that are not going to work out for them very well. He says, essentially, um, and you can see the subheadings, and you can tell that I did those. They didn't come out of a a version of the Bible. but, uh, But that your fortifications, your great forts, your acts of military power are not going to stand up to the work that God is doing right now. And interestingly, one of the things that God is doing right now is a prophet is being sent in this generation to Assyria, Jonah is going and the Assyrians are repenting and Jonah doesn't want to go, right? One of the reasons he doesn't want to go is he's thinking, gosh, if God is purifying the Assyrians and the Israelites are this wicked, that does not look good. That's not good signs of the times, so to speak. So they're being told their fortifications, their military power means nothing as it aligns itself against Yahweh. Now, typically, you've heard the phrase, Uh, Rich man's war, poor man's fight. And, and as the way the world typically works, people that have great power and prestige, they don't actually do the fighting, right? They do the thinking of the fighting, and then they say, Zach, you, 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 why don't you handle out there, and here's a gun. Uh, do your best, so to speak. So there's the idea that human a- uh, uh, affluence and accumulation matters. Um, did you notice the little translation? This was from one of, one of my professors that basically said, um, those who sit in." samaria um or those who live in samaria will be rescued great just actually some luxurious bedding and some fine couch and fabric here and there just like the shepherd who saves the li- from the lion's mouth only two leg bones and a piece of the year so this is vivid image that wealth is not going to matter In God's reckoning, it's not going to play out that way. And then we go on and we see this idea of human beauty, their opulent temples, the things that they've made, the works of art. Surely God will look at that and say, humanity, you are so amazing. Israel, you've botched the covenant, but you've made such beautiful things. Not at all. And then we get this kind of last image here of the real housewives of Samaria, um, the, uh, the cows of... You know, in any culture, if someone calls you a cow of Bashan, there's probably no way to construe that as a compliment. And so we have this image of the wealthy, indolent people of Samaria living their lifestyle without any awareness that God has seen the world that they're living in and is judging it. And, and remember, for, for us, that language of judgment is a language of it being set to right. The world is going to be set right. So whether it's their artistic and their splendor that they've made, whether it is their military power, whether it's what they've accumulated, these things will not matter. God will have no respect for those things. So as we're tracking through Amos, let me tell you a couple of things we're going to talk a lot about. We're going to talk a lot about community. What was the people of Israel? What were they supposed to be? Because we who call ourselves God followers can learn much from what does it mean to be the people of God based on the successes and the failures of Israel? We're also, in this text, going to be challenged to lots of specific actions. God is not asking for an academic meeting defining the definition of justice. What is being required here of the people is actions that embody the justice of God. And here we have a portrait of God who burns for a just society. So we're going to look a lot at actions or community moving forward. What's interesting about this text and, and is that and Amos is fairly redundant in a certain way. In other words, over the next several chapters, Amos is going to begin to parse out some of the wickedness and injustice of Israel. But it's interesting here that it actually begins with a description of God. We have heard that the Israelites are covenant breakers, but now we're learning in this short chapter about who the covenant maker is. Who is Yahweh that made a covenant with these people? And we're learning that human strength, human beauty, human accumulation, and human life all depend on God. If you were to ask the Israelites, they might say it depends on us and our faithful worship, our religiosity, but... Chapter 3 is inverting that portrait of saying that the people depend on Yahweh to be sustained and that God is a speaking God. God is a correcting God. God is a changing God. So here's a challenge I think this text leaves with us is that here we are, and I know some of you love the book of Amos. I love the book of Amos because I think one of the things that is so constantly overlooked is, and in fact, many times you'll ask people, what is the gospel? And they will say the good news of God has something solely to do with what happens in personal lives, in people's relationship to God. And certainly there's a lot of that humanity in the Bible. But the portrait of the good news in the Old Testament, the New Testament, is always not just some person getting right with God, but a culture, a kingdom, a world, creation being reframed and reformed and redeemed in the image and vision of God, the gospel is always on that scale. Our most natural reaction to that is, okay, what do I do? But maybe what Amos is doing in the construction of this oracle is saying, maybe the first thing that we do is we listen. We discern the character of God. We, we model the world based on who God is. Because in chapter 1 and 2, one of the things that we realized was who were the most unrighteous people in Israel? It was the religious people. The portrait of the wrongdoers were not some filthy, uncultured, unschooled, unreligious people, but it was the people who were claiming to have the highest religiosity who were the ones who were failing the most. So a starting point in forming a community that builds a world that reflects the justice of God is discerning the character of God. So as we think about being a just community. As we think about this gathered group of friends who share life together and share community together, one of the things that we constantly want to say is as a community, we need to in some small way reflect the character of God in our work here. And we do, whether it's with Antioch or or, uh, Durham Can or the Reality Center, there's many ways, Africa Rising, many ways that we embody what God is all about. But if we do those things without discerning the character of God first, we are going to struggle in knowing what is God's definition of justice. Because throughout all the history of humankind, faith, religion, worship has constantly been contaminated and thwarted and warped away from a vision of who the character of God is. So as we imagine being a just people, Here's some things we've got to really struggle with. One is we've got to struggle with discernment. And isn't that really difficult in our culture? I mean, I watched last night, again, back to my politics, they had a cut from Obama responding to um, Gingrich last night. And it would be as if someone said, water is wet. And somebody else said, no, actually, water is dry. It would be like if you were a five-year-old. Let's say when Ian was growing up, and you were sitting down, and you were reading your books for the first time. Ian would probably be like one or two reading for the first time. And your mom sat down beside you and pointed to a rhino and said, giraffe. You're like, how would you know? And so we live in a world where there's incredibly competing visions of what truth is and what justice is. And so we're going to have to be a people who discern. And one of the things that's going to be absolutely critical is to be a praying community. One of the things that's so often disconnected in, in, in Christendom is justice and action from reflection and discernment. Those two things need to be constantly wedded with each other. We need to learn to hear the voice of God. We need to learn to see the world with the eyes that God has. And one of the most critical things in doing that for us is to do it in community. If I were to say, I won't ask this tonight, what do you think we should do first? I would hope, and I think we would, get 20 or 30 different answers about what might be the most important thing to do in our community. But in listening to each other's voices, in praying together, in reading the text together, and in interpreting together, the most critical element of that is we learn to discern the presence and voice of God. Maybe the most significant thing that we have in chapter 3 of Amos is a group of people being religious, fulfilling the What they think the covenant is, building beautiful things, building strong things in the name of God. And they're willing to call those things the blessings of God, but all of those things standing in opposition to God's just view of the world. So, you know, something that we might consider moving forward as as a community, and as a community we're constantly always stretching and pulling and pushing and learning from each other, is to be a missional people. We talk a lot about that. We have to be a prayerful people. We have to be a discerning people. We have to be a listening people. And, And understand that prayer is many, many, many different forms that draw us into an awareness that we live in the presence of a good and just God. So as we warm up for Amos 4 and Amos 5, as we look at the specific actions of injustice, and perhaps in the next several weeks, as we get the opportunity to hear what might it mean to be to respond in our world, let's begin with prayer. Let me pray for us tonight that we might remember and value this this word and message. God, we thank you for the challenge, the beauty, the graphic beauty of this text uh, challenge us as a people, challenge us as people who are straining to embody you in this, t- in this, in the context of our city, that we might be deeply committed to listening, listening to you, listening to you through the voices of others, listening to people who are not, who have diversities that are not represented in our church and community. Might we listen in prayer, or might we discern what you are indeed doing as a God of redemption, of recreation, and a God of hope. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks, Tim. Our confession tonight, as we move to confession and absolution, before we get to the table. Uh, Confession is written by Mark Hurd, and this is uh, an arrangement uh, that Herod and Funk did. um, And it's really a very prophetic song, uh, in the same way it's telling the truth about Uh, things that uh, he's noticing around him, things that don't seem to line up with uh, what he feels like is uh, God's uh, vision of of the world. And yet, he kind of tosses it off by saying, oh, I guess people tell me I worry too much. I shouldn't be worried about this. So hear this as your confession. Certainly uh, sing along if you like, or just spend some time uh, ruminating, praying while we're in this song, Worry
1: Too Much.
6: demolition derby It's the sport of the heart
1: It's the proud tribe in full war dance The slow smile the bully gives the wrong It's the force of inertia It's the lack of constraint It's the children out playing in the rock garden all dolled up in black hats and war paint Sometimes it feels like bars of steel I cannot bend with my head Oh, I worry too much Somebody told me I worry too much Oh, I worry too much Somebody told me I worry It's the sandpaper ice. It's the way they rub the luster from what it's seen The way we tell ourselves that all these things are normal Till we can't remember what we mean It's the flicker of our flames It's the friction born of living It's the way we beat a high retreat And heave our smoking guns to the river Vanity of nations It's the way there'll be No muffled drum to mark the passage My generation It's the children of my children The Lamb's born of innocence It's wondering if the good I know Will last to be seen by the eye See you.
0: song that reminds us that we can't get it right on our own, we won't get it right on our own, that God is full of both mercy and grace, and that He uh, does indeed love us, and something I think we have to remember, uh, some of these nights where judgment can seem like all we see or hear, um, and the chorus says, um, in my heart I see you run free like a river, Down to the sea, and all the chains that held you down will be in pieces on the ground. You'll drink the rain and ride the wind to me.
5: Mike Garrigan with us tonight. Dale, it's always great to have you with us as well. Um, I hope in that last song that you caught that chorus is such a beautiful articulation of absolution. Uh, In my heart I see you run free. I think sometimes uh, we get so used to music and our culture and kind of having uh, something playing in the background that um, I don't want you to miss that here at Emmaus Way, that the structure of the confession and the absolution Our artists have worked on to craft a message that we can speak to one another and that we can speak uh, in the presence of the community of God that both allows us to confess, but then to receive that absolution from one another where we say, I see you running now free in the graciousness of God. You know, Amos is a tough book to read, let's be honest. I mean, it's one of those books where all of a sudden you find God in our mix, God is all of a sudden somewhat in our face here, and it's frankly a bit uncomfortable. It's not typically the way that we like to think of God interacting with us. We often, or more often, like our worship kind of on the light, right? I mean, we kind of like this idea that we can have an experience with God, or that it can be some kind of an emotional engagement with God, or that worship is maybe, you know, a good sermon, a good sermon that reminds us that we deserve to be in control of things. Uh, that worship is sometimes about something that's quite distant from the actual way that you and I conduct our lives. We don't get that in Amos. In Amos, we get a different sense of the way in which worship is how we learn our ethics. That worship is how we as a community and as the people of God learn to live together, and how we learn to serve the world in doing so. Tonight, as we head to the table, we're going to practice what it means to live ethically with one another, that in some sense, what we find with the table as the center of our worship is that God is in our mix, and that that is not something that comes to us as something that confronts us and makes us feel horrible about ourselves, but it is something that graciously interrupts our lives and invites us into a different way of living with one another. That as we encounter the table, as we receive the graciousness of God into our lives, as we receive the body of Christ and the blood of Christ into our mouths, that we are given the graciousness of God, that we're given the grace of God to live in community with one another, that here in the central part of our worship, we get a snapshot of what justice actually looks like. It looks like everybody eating. It looks like everybody sharing with one another. It looks like us conversing with one another, intertwining our lives and receiving the grace of God in doing so. At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open open table, meaning all of you are invited to come. We come to the table and we break bread for one another, handing it to one another, saying, the body of Christ broken for you. And we pour either wine or juice for one another, saying, the blood of Christ shed for you. And we do that recognizing and receiving it as God's actual gift of grace into our lives so that we can be empowered to live as his people in the world. Before we head to the communion table, um, I'm going to ask that we sing the song of Benediction because I don't I know we got a lot going on later and I don't want us to miss that. Um, So let's sing the song of benediction together. I'll pray for us right before we do that, and that will be our blessing to also jump in on pizza and get ready for the Ecclesia meeting. Once again, those of you that are new with us, please feel free to stick around, grab something to eat, hang out for the Ecclesia meeting. If you want to see how we do business here in our community, you're totally invited to do so. So let me bless it. Um, And remember as you come to the table that we're practicing our ethics, that we're practicing the justice of God where we can see it lived out here. Lord, thank you for the gift of your grace, the gift of your son, the gift that you do come and encounter us in our lives. Bless us now as we partake of your body and blood that we receive it as grace, as our communion with you, And that it empowers us to be people who work in our world for its restoration and for its redemption. Bless now also the food to our bodies and our bodies to your service. In your son's name we pray. Amen.
1: Born to be loved
3: In many ways, uh, Dan, you said that well. And Amos, the absolution every week is going to be really important for us because it doesn't come until the end. But one more word to hear is that how would you have heard this text if you were the victims of injustice? In some ways, we just sang their their anthem, that God is going to intervene for their love. Uh, as Dan said, uh, please join us at the table. Uh, uh, and thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, go in God's peace as well. Amen.